Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, senior analysts Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, How hey. you doing, Chris? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll talk with Bloomberg senior editor Brad Stone about his new book on Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin in the Magic Kingdom. Disney's second quarter report had some bright spots. Profits came in higher than expected, and they added 9 million subscribers for their Disney Plus streaming service. But Wall Street was looking for even more subscribers, as well as higher revenue, and shares of Disney fell 6% this week, Ron. Oh, Wall Street. (laughs) What do you know? Yes, you hit it on the head. Weaker than expected subscriber growth for Disney Plus. Clearly disappointing investors. Stock is actually down this year, significantly rebounding from the worst of the pandemic, but down this year. Parks and resorts still impacted by the pandemic. Um, Most television and production resumed, but they're still seeing disruption of film and television production, as well as live sporting events, uh, obviously. Uh, So that all kind of combined to see um, total revenue down 13%. Park segment down 44%. Shouldn't be uh, that surprising to folks um, based on what we're seeing um, in terms of traffic, parks reopening. But management does expect this to improve and improve significantly, especially, I think, in light of the new mask guidelines released this week by the CDC. So that's encouraging. Now, their, their media and entertainment segment revenue that increased by 1%. Nothing too exciting, but it was up, led by a 59% increase in what they call direct to consumer revenue, and that is largely Disney Plus. Those results were similar to last quarter. Um, they did see about an 8.7, you said 9, 8.7 to $9 million increase in subscribers. That was good, but that was largely offset by higher costs for ongoing expansion of programming, the move into additional markets. And still, even though they increased $9 million, that that was just uh, not enough um, for some investors who were hoping for much stronger growth, as we had seen in previous quarters. Disney Plus has tripled um, from last year, but obviously they were starting at a low base. 103, 103.6 million subscribers globally right now. They did see their average monthly revenue per subscriber decrease, and that's because they launched Disney Hotstar in India, and that decreased overall um, revenue per subscriber. Hulu improved, ESPN even improved a bit, ESPN Plus, I should say. Networks declined 4%. That's the biggest part of their media component. But it all kind of jumbles together for an earnings per share increase, an adjusted one of 32%, which is solid. Um, A lot's going to happen this quarter as the the parks gain steam, as Disney Plus kind of takes a a breather, perhaps, um, due to the economy opening and people getting back out into the world. It's going to be a really interesting quarter that we're in right now to keep an eye on. Yeah, I got to say, Ron, I was a little surprised at how focused Bob Chapek, the CEO, was on Disney Plus, considering that they came out with this earnings report after the CDC had issued their updated guidelines on wearing masks. And when you think about how big parks are in terms of the revenue pie for Disney, I thought he would have talked a little bit more about that. He is making it very clear it is all about Disney Plus right now. 
Yeah, the, it's the it's the new Disney. It's the digital Disney. But we, you are right. We cannot forget that a significant percentage of operating income still comes for, from the parks and entertainment and resorts segment. And that's why I think this quarter, I'm going to keep my eye on that, perhaps, um, significantly more, I think, than the, the Disney Plus subscription um, ups or downs, as we see it during the quarter. Shares of Marriott were basically flat this week. First quarter profits were higher than expected, but overall revenue was light. Jason, Marriott is seeing higher demand for hotel rooms, but there is definitely a chance for improvement here. Yeah, I mean, definitely a chance for improvement. I think while we may be living in the age of Airbnb, I do think that with with more than 7,600 properties around the world, Marriott still matters very much for travelers and therefore should matter for investors as well. The numbers weren't all that stellar. Of course, RevPAR, that revenue per available room metric, which is a key performance indicator, down basically 46% in all markets compared to the first quarter of a year ago. Adjusted Operating income for the for the quarter came in at 138 million, which was down from 293 million a year ago. All resulted in uh, diluted uh, earnings per share of 10 cents uh, versus 49 cents a year ago. So that doesn't sound all that great, but there is light at the end of the tunnel, uh, Chris. Mainland China, where occupancy is near the pre-pandemic level, occupancy reached 66 percent uh, in March. That was nearly the same as as in March 2019. Seeing strong demand in both leisure and business, at U.S. and Canada, we're also seeing that trending in the right direction. Occupancy started the year at 33 percent in January, reached 49 percent by March. So they continue to do an excellent job uh, engaging their 150 million plus Bonvoy members with various incentive programs and and credit card partnerships. Uh, all in all, I think the the pursuit that they're making also with uh, the home and villas by Marriott International, uh, it, it, a lot of reasons to be optimistic about this business as the economy starts to recover. Sticking with travel lodging, Airbnb grew its revenue in the first quarter, but the company's loss tripled, and shares of Airbnb fell eight percent this week. And Ron, I think we can go ahead and add their management to the list of company executives who just aren't sure what the second half of this year is going to look like. It's it, visibility, as as they say on Wall Street, is is really murky right now, and it's it's very difficult to see what will happen. You know, this quarter there were some really good parts to this quarter: COVID nineteen vaccinations and easing restrictions uh, economically. Obviously, led to more people booking rentals, and and just for context, reminder that this company only went public back in December of 2020 at $68 a share, and immediately skyrocketed to $146. We're at about $140 per share now, with an $86 billion market cap. Um, but this quarter saw some real some real high high spots. Gross bookings up 52%. One interesting little tidbit was searches on the platform from people 60 years older and above were up 60% in February and March. And you'll recall that this was really the first group to get widely vaccinated. And so they were they were out there looking for vacation rentals. Revenue was up 5.4%. That was driven by higher average daily rates, fewer cancellations um, relative to this time last year. Um, another interesting thing that uh, I noted was that almost a quarter of the nights booked were not for traditional travel, but for stays of 28 days or more. Um, that was up from 14% in 2019. Um, so now it's almost 25% um, long term travel. Uh, net loss was $1.2 billion, as you said. 
that that's compared with 340 million last time. So significantly increased. But there was a lot of what I think will be one-time charges there. So if we adjust for that, we can see adjusted EBITDA still negative, but 59 million, getting closer to profitability. Big announcement coming on May 24th. They'll discuss the future of travel. They'll unveil a new guest experience on their site. So for you Airbnb fans, keep an eye out for May 24th. First quarter revenue for Roblox was 140% higher than a year ago. Roblox is the popular gaming app for kids. It shares up 10% this week, Jason. Yeah, well, I mean, if you if you you don't really fully get the metaverse, well, join the club, right? I think a lot of us are trying, just trying to wrap our, our minds around it. Uh, that doesn't make it any less real. Uh, it, it is very much real. It's just this concept of a virtual universe, a place where pretty much anything can happen virtually. And, and Roblox, I think, is going to be a compelling way to play it, I think, for investors. Uh, looking at the numbers that you mentioned, revenue up uh, 140%. Uh, from a year ago to $387 million. Bookings increased 161%. Average daily active users, 42.1 million people. That's up 79% from a year ago. And, and while you mentioned kids, I will say that number was driven by 111% growth in uh, daily active users over the age of 13. So, so even adolescents getting out of adolescence into, into young adulthood, there are a lot of folks that really enjoy this platform. Uh, and ultimately, Hours engaged were 9.7 billion, uh, which was up 98% from a year ago. So I, I think this is a company just new to the public markets. They're doing a lot of things right, and, and clearly a, a big um, um, headline out there with all of the attention the platform gets. I think something to watch, and it's because they rely on their developers. Developer exchange fees represent the amount earned by developers and creators on the platform. Those fees were up 167% for the quarter, representing 31% of revenue versus 28% a year ago. Just given the nature of the platform, that's a metric to keep an eye on, but it certainly looks like April is moving in the right direction as well. So, a good start, it looks like, for Roblox. An iconic brand is getting ready to return to the public markets. Details after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. It was an eventful week for the Trade Desk. The digital ad platform announced a 10-for-1 stock split and posted first-quarter results that looked good on the surface, Jason, and yet shares of the Trade Desk fell more than 20% this week. Yeah, it's funny. Splits usually have the opposite reaction. I mean, what's up with that, Chris? Uh, I, I I don't like to say it just blindly by the dip when things like this happen. But to me, as as an, an owner of Trade Desk shares, as as someone who follows the company, this really did seem like an overreaction to a to a very good business. Uh, now, with that said, it is worth noting too. Before that sell-off, it was trading at 86 times free cash flow. So, a cheap stock it was not. But when you look at the numbers, I think you have to be encouraged. Revenue was up 37% from a year ago. Non-GAAP earnings up 56%. Customer retention remains strong at 95% or better. And and they're calling for revenue uh, for the coming quarter here between 259 million and 262 million dollars, and that's well above uh, expectations. So I, th- I think. For me, this is two things: the lack of clarity into the rest of the year. Right, they're still a little bit uncertain, and there are also, I think, some bigger question marks in regard to the Unified ID 2.0, that UID 2, which is a new industry-wide approach to identity. 
helping to preserve the value of relevant advertising while while putting user control and privacy at the forefront. I think there's some questions in regard to exactly how well that's going to work, the traction that it's gaining. Management seems to be very optimistic. They see it as a very consumer-centric uh, issue that gives customers more relevant data while giving the consumer more understanding and clarity. Uh, making big investments into, into their platform, they're going to be launching a new uh, dynamic, a new platform here called Solomara this summer uh, that, that should add to the value that, that they're giving their customers. That'll be something to follow. Um, but, but at the end of the day, very strong business, very strong balance sheet. Uh, I, I look at that sell-off is a bit of an overreaction. And again, as a shareholder myself, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about where this business is headed. Chris, I must add that although splits often do have a positive impact, they should not. They should have <laughs> no impact whatsoever, unless for some reason it increases liquidity in some big way. But this this company has plenty of liquidity before that, um, so it should have no impact. Let's keep reminding investors of that. It's like reality versus metaverse, right, Ron? <laughs> <laughs> it's more fun though. Come on, ten All for right. one split. That's more Fine. fun. DoorDash lost $110 million in the first quarter. That was more than expected, but the company raised guidance and shares of DoorDash up 20% on Friday. 20%, Ron? <laughs> Some really yeah. strong revenues numbers here. Um, actually, pretty phenomenal. This one went public also uh, back in 2020, if you recall, um, at, at 100, uh, went public at $102 a share, now trades around $140. So revenue was up almost 200% here. Um, obviously, pandemic. And COVID still having an impact, a favorable impact. Total orders grew 219%. Uh, gross profit was up 233%. And yet, Chris, they still had a net loss of $110 million. That should speak to the business model um, just a little bit um, for you. Uh, adjusted EBITDA a little bit better. Cash flow, uh, when we talk about EBITDA, a measure of cash flow, um, $43 million. So that, that was positive. So th that's one bright spot in addition to the strong revenue numbers. Easing of COVID restrictions, reopening of the economy um, had an impact that was smaller than management expected. Um, things were actually better than management expected, but they are still seeing the negative impact of that reopening. They expect that impact to grow in the summer months and beyond as things get more back to normal. Impact was probably mitigated in the first quarter by stimulus checks, um, so people had some extra money to spend. They're expanding into convenience stores, grocery stores, alcohol, pets. Um, that was up over 40% in the quarter, small base, obviously. Uh, but they were able to raise guidance, as you said, to the top of their forecast for full-year EBITDA. We'll keep an eye on this thing. Profitability, um, pathway to profitability is what always investors want to see. I'm sorry. Did you say pets? Like uh, the alcohol delivery? I understand. I can have a pet delivered to me. I, the pet market. I should have said. I don't think they're delivering actual animals, but you can get your your food and your pet accessories delivered via DoorDasher. Shares of Unity Software falling a bit this week, despite the fact that first quarter revenue was higher than expected, and their loss was smaller than expected. And Jason, I know it's not a cheap stock, but it really does seem like. The numbers in Unity's business are going in the direction you would want if you're a shareholder. 
Oh yes, and I and I am a shareholder, and, and I agree they are going in, in the right direction. I think uh, for me the biggest takeaway for investors is that this clearly is not just a gaming engine anymore. I mean, it came to the market with that identification. Uh, it is not that way anymore. This really is a creation engine, and I think that's only going to continue to to gain traction uh, as they introduce new customers in household appliances, automotive, healthcare, aerospace. I mean, you name it. These guys are these guys are doing a lot of different things here. Uh, so to the numbers. Revenue of 234.8 million. That was uh, better than than the guidance they set last quarter. Uh, they raised guidance for the full year here. They're going to cross that one billion dollar in revenue mark. And, and I was calling that out in my my recommendation of the company several months back. I thought they'd cross that one billion mark no later than 2022. Looks like they're going to get it here in 2021, which is nice. Uh, strong performance in both the Create Solutions and Operate Solutions. Create Solutions revenue up 51%, Operate up 40%. And uh, it's the, the Operate Solutions is the bigger part of the business. That's a usage-based model. So, engagement uh, seems to be heading in the right direction based on those numbers. And then, when we look at the value of large customers, they have 837 customers now that generated more than $100,000 of revenue uh, for the company in the trailing 12 months versus 668 uh, as of March 31st in 2020, a dollar-based net expansion rate as well, 140% versus 133% a year ago. Uh, this is, I think, a business that is doing all the right things. It's just typically, with these types of businesses, valuation is going to be one of the bigger risks until they get to that uh, that sustainable, uh, profitable model, which, which will be, uh, eventually, it's just not there yet. Krispy Kreme is returning to the public markets. The company has confidentially submitted a draft registration statement to the SEC. Still to be determined is how many shares will be offered and what the price range will be for Krispy Kreme stock. But, Ron, we get to invest in donuts again. <laughs> Good donuts, too. Really, really tasty donuts. Um, yeah, Krispy Kreme has a really interesting, somewhat murky past. Went public back in 2000. They were. They expanded rapidly. Um, they were really quite the high flyer at one point, and and then scandal hit, accounting scandals, and it was a bit of a mess. They ended up having to file for Chapter 11. They eventually were taken private by JAB for 1.4 billion dollars, not a hefty price tag. Um, so here they are going back out, confidential filing um, with the SEC. So as you said, we don't have much information at this point yet. They are a private company. Uh, I will remind folks that Duncan, another delicious uh, donut company, which I think of more as a coffee company, personally, was taken private last year by Inspire Brands for $8.7, $8.8 billion. Um, so, it will be interesting to see what, what kind of market cap um, Krispy Kreme comes out at and what the demand looks like for it. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. How did Amazon secretly develop the Echo? And which cities were the real finalists to be the home of Amazon's second headquarters? Answers to those questions and more coming up with best-selling author Brad Stone. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Time to make the donuts. Time to make the donuts. It's time to make the donuts today. Time to make the donuts for you and for your grown-ups. It's time to make the donuts right away. When you wake at half past eight and don't Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Brad Stone is the senior executive editor of global technology at Bloomberg News. He is also a best-selling author. 
whose brand new book just out this week is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. He joins me now from San Francisco. Brad, welcome back to the show. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, congrats on the book. It is it's fantastic. Um, and there are so many things in this book that you cover because Amazon is now this enormous collection of businesses. So we don't have time to get into all of them. Um, but I, I did want to hit just a few of the things that you've done with this book because um, you've clearly broken new ground in terms of the people you've interviewed, the documents you've reviewed. And let, let's start with something that happens relatively early in the book, and that is the Amazon Echo, which uh, is, is probably easy for people to um, uh, forget at this point. But the Amazon Echo came about in the wake of a tremendous failure on the part of Amazon with their, uh, with their Fire Phone, which was just a complete flop. But Bezos gets this idea for a device that you can talk to, and it responds, and it ties in with Amazon Web Services and the cloud. And as you document, they pull this off in an extraordinary way. Right. Um, well, Chris, what what the, the key to making the Echo work was something called far-field speech recognition. So, not talking into your phone as you might have originally done with Siri, but being able to talk across a garage or across a kitchen and having it understand you. And it turns out that the key to that kind of uh, natural language understanding is collecting a lot of data. And I actually call this the, it's, it's almost like the, the AI catch 22. You can't release something um, because it won't be smart, but you have to release it so that you get enough data to make it smart. So what Amazon did with with Alexa is they brought it out in the, on the road and they would they rented these apartments and homes and they brought Alexas into them, but they covered them in like acoustic fabric. And then they brought in like armies of contractors to recite from scripts and to, to make queries out loud. And these people did not know what they were doing. And in fact, neighbors were calling the police on these Amazon uh, apartments because it seemed kind of sketchy, whatever was going on there. But in the end, Amazon gets the data, solves the Catch-22, releases the product, as you say, a couple of months after the Firephone bombs. And Alexa is a, is a cultural hit. And it, it kind of redefines people's uh, um, a sense of Amazon and the number of times they interact with this company, uh, not no longer once or twice a month, but sometimes multiple times a day. And as you said, with AI, it's the sort of thing that just gets smarter as it goes. And now that I, I don't know, a couple, you know, is it a hundred million of these devices they've sold? Uh, you know, clearly, it's getting smarter all the time. And yet, you know, let's admit, maybe sometimes unsatisfyingly, uh, you know, it doesn't quite answer uh, all of our queries. Sometimes the, the best application for Alexa seems like interrogating Alexa and figuring out what it knows and what it doesn't know. So there's still a lot of room for them to go there. One of the most interesting parts to me in the book is a period in, I think, 2017, when it, it really seems like Jeff Bezos is starting to pull away from the day-to-day -day duties of running Amazon. He's uh, involved in The Washington Post. He's involved in Blue Origin and gets together with his senior leaders as they're sort of going through all the different parts of the business. And 
It's, it sounds like being in a meeting with Jeff Bezos where he's pouring over materials and you're presenting to him is a, is a pretty uh, scary proposition. But in this particular meeting, Bezos seems to key in on the downside of something that we've talked about on this show for a couple of years now, which is Amazon is starting to make more money from advertising, which on the surface appears to be a good thing. But as Bezos digs into it, he feels like there's a problem underneath. Right, right. And this is one of his kind of magic superpowers. He looks at these dense, data-rich documents in the 2017 operating planning meeting, and he identifies that it looks like the retail business is growing very nicely and becoming more profitable. But in fact, that advertising business, Chris, that you're talking about, those search ads are responsible for a lot of growth. And he asks, well, what does this look like if you take out advertising and he, he's pressing and pressing and then Amazon Unbound, I've got you know these, these detailed meetings that you're right, make you kind of shake. They can be so intimidating. And what he determines is that the underlying profitability of the retail business was getting worse. Now, the thing about Jeff Bezos is the newer projects, Alexa and the, the Go store, that cashierless store, or the expansion in India, he's fine losing billions of dollars over the course of seven, eight years. But the older businesses, like retail was in 2017, he thinks those should be getting more profitable, more operating leverage. And so he makes everyone's life miserable, demands headcounts, cost reductions. There are some quasi layoffs at Amazon. They have to go renegotiate their agreements with all their suppliers. And actually, the result is not just an unfettered advertising business that's now beginning to throw off a lot of cash, but you know some of the stock growth we, we've seen since then, and really Amazon surpassing the trillion-dollar market cap threshold. So that was kind of a key point in the story I'm telling and in the history of Amazon. Well, and it also, um, I think, does an effective job at, at getting at a, a, a misconception about Jeff Bezos, which has lasted for a couple of decades, which is, well, he's this guy who's focused on growth and customer satisfaction, and he doesn't really care about profits. But as you said, now, if something is promising, he'll give it a long runway. But at some point, it's got to be profitable. And once it's profitable, it needs to be more profitable down the line. But it seems like this rise of the advertising business sort of, in some ways, compromises the um, the edict of we want to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Because as they are succeeding with this ad business, it, it, it really kind of diminishes the customer experience a little bit. I think so. I mean, you look at Amazon search results, and it's no longer this taxonomy of useful things. It's pay to play, right? It's the sellers and the brands who want to be there alongside Amazon's own private label business. Um, but, you know, Bezos made a decision. It was his decision that even if there is some diminishment of the customer experience, the ad business, which I think last quarter they said it was generating about $7 billion, would offer up so many investment opportunities that it would outweigh whatever uh, depreciation on the customer experience there is. And probably the result is the movies and the TV shows the Prime members get, and Amazon investing more in India, and who knows what products that haven't even been introduced in. So, um, I think you're right. I think there's an argument that the world's most customer-centric company, as they like to call themselves, made a decision in the growth of their ad business that actually wasn't very customer-centric, but that they thought the trade-off was worth it because they wanted those sweet, sweet investment dollars.
One of the biggest stories over the last few years involving Amazon is, of course, the search that the company undertook for a second headquarters. It was something we talked about a lot on our podcast at The Motley Fool. And uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person reading this book to be surprised that when it came down to the work that this team was doing, and they were incredibly diligent, taking hundreds of applications, essentially, from cities across America, whittling it down to 20, that when they made their final recommendations, it was cities that ended up not being chosen. The the recommendations from the team were Chicago, Philadelphia, and Raleigh, North Carolina. And somehow we ended up in New York and Northern Virginia. It was really remarkable as I was reporting that out and getting the internal documents at, at Amazon to the site selection committee in, inside the, the company had produced. And they went on this grand tour and it was all in the news and we were all talking about it. And those were the three finalists. And at the time, Amazon is battling with the city of Seattle, uh, which had view, started to view it as a kind of gentrifying uh, presence. And it was understanding that it was going to have to grow outside of Seattle. And, you know, Bezos, uh, you know, the fact is he, he owns homes in New York City and Washington, D.C. Um, they, they, they prioritize access to talent. So that was certainly part of it. Um, and they, they make this left turn to go to, to split up HQ2. And I think what they underestimated was the extent to which the negative political winds that were blowing in Seattle were also going to be there for it in New York. And that's what we saw with the whole fight with AOC and the city council and the battle over whether Amazon would allow unionization. And it's like this gripping drama, um, which you know we got only a little glimpse of when it was happening in real time. And the result, of course, is that Amazon pulled out of New York City and really got this black eye uh, and is now, you know, growing happily inside Manhattan and elsewhere in Crystal City uh, and in Bellevue and Washington. And of course, in a bunch of other cities, you really can't stop the growth. But it was the beginning, I think, of a little bit of a turning point in Amazon's reputation, uh, not just as a technology innovator, but as a, as a little bit of a, you know, a, a wealthy monopolistic company that a lot of people felt shouldn't be asking for tax breaks or tax incentives. You spent years on this, interviewing senior executives, going through internal documents. What surprised you the most when you were researching this book? I think it's, you know, as the business drama plays out, as Amazon grows, Bezos undergoes a startling transformation almost right before our eyes. um, And he is attracted to the glamour of Hollywood and the bright lights of celebrity and all that is human. But, you know, Chris, you asked me what surprised me. And it was the extent to which the the transformation of his personal life, which was splashed out over the tabloids, really did impact Amazon. You know, selecting uh, New York and, and Washington, D.C., asking for helipads in both of those locations because his girlfriend at the time was a helicopter pilot. He was taking helicopter flying lessons. He had bought a helicopter and it contributed to the blow up in, in New York City. Um, or, uh, you know, there, there, there's a bunch of other examples. And, and that surprised me, you know, how the most disciplined person in the world got into a situation where his personal life became fodder uh, for the tabloids and how that reflected on Amazon. You know, it's an interesting part of the story. But I think at the time and still today, it's kind of shocking. Sometime later this year, 
He's going to leave the corner office. Andy Jassy, the head of Amazon Web Services, will become the next CEO at Amazon. Bezos becomes executive chair. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've seen this movie before, and there are two versions of it. There's one version where uh, the executive chair sort of steps back, lets the new guy uh, take the reins of the company. And there's the other version where he's right over the shoulder of the new CEO. Where do you think this goes? Where is Andy Jassy, uh, say, a year into the job? I think it probably starts with the second scenario you described, with Bezos remaining the loudest voice in the in the conference room. Um, you know, he says he's going to stick around to work on new projects. I would imagine he'll be there on big strategic decisions, acquisitions, uh, annual reviews. But gradually, I could see him move into the first example um, of someone who is uh, really that chairman, the head of the board of directors. Um, observing at some distance because look, he's got a $200 billion fortune to give away. He's got a space company, Blue Origin, that's ailing a little bit. Um, he's got, he's building, you know, in my book, I report that he's building this fantastic luxury yacht. Um, so clearly uh, taking some time to relax is part of uh, his uh, future calculus. And so I think we, we move from the overbearing Bezos a little bit to more the, the, uh, the founder who is uh, a little less present. When you look at Elon Musk and SpaceX, it's natural for me to think, eh, he's going to spend some time on Blue Origin. He needs to fix things, right? They, they thought they could go slow and uh, take it step by step. And Bezos is personally financing it all himself. But the reality is that you know SpaceX is a company now that, that survives and thrives mostly on government contracts and military contracts. And you know Bezos... Um, is envious of that. You know, he thinks that Blue Origin should be paid to play, so to speak. And so I think we're going to see a fiercer competition between the two richest guys in the world. And Chris, I don't know about you, but that sounds great. That sounds enormously entertaining. It really does. Let's get the popcorn. We'll hang out and watch it. The book is Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. You can find it at your local independent bookstore. You could probably find it online somewhere, if you can think of a place online to buy books. Brad Stone, always great talking with you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Up next, Jason Moser and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. A man we tried to stare me down. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Jason Moser and Ron Gross. Guys, before we get to the stocks on our radar, Bill Ackman back in the news this week. He and his team at Pershing Square sold out of their shares in Starbucks, Ron, and revealed they took a 6% stake in a business near and dear to your heart, Domino's Pizza. What do you think? I, I like this. I mean, he, he called out some of the obvious reasons to, to own Domino's. The, their pure franchising opportunity, they've invested in their technology and their delivery in a major way before most uh, people did, pre-pandemic for sure. Uh, they own their own delivery infrastructure. They don't have to rely on the DoorDashers of the world. There's plenty of expansion opportunity left for, for Domino's franchises. Uh, and I like this investment right here. And he obviously likes it to the tune of 6%. Pretty impressive. 
Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, will hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Sure thing. Well, as we wrap up earnings Palooza next week, we will see Home Depot earnings uh, released, and ticker there is HD. Uh, earnings for Home Depot out on Tuesday, May 18th, and uh, you know Home Depot's had a really good year to date thus far. I'm very curious to hear their language on the call regarding things like inflation, the housing market, lumber. I think is another uh, hot button issue right now. If you look at last quarter, uh, they were talking about uh, lumber prices falling very sharply as they were exiting their third. Quarter, but then they go to the fourth quarter, and and pricing for both framing and panel lumber reversed and set new near-term highs. Uh, and, and this matters because when you see that mix of of lumber, that's that's a margin impactor. When they they can't realize as much profit on that lumber, the higher those lumber prices go, uh, so that that can be something that pressures margins in the near term. But I'll be paying attention to that um, at less than thirty times earnings with a a nice two percent dividend yield. I, this is just a really wonderful long term holding that plays into what seems to be just a perpetually <laughs> slow but growing market. <laughs> Dan, question about Home Depot. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jason, I feel like Home Depot's biggest competitor is Lowe's, and uh, every time I go to Lowe's versus Home Depot, I enjoy the experience more, but I end up going to Home Depot more because it's closer. I live about a mile away from a Home Depot. So, is Lowe's a big competition? Is it a big problem for Home Depot coming up, or has Home Depot got it on lockdown? Lowe's is absolutely becoming a, a greater threat to Home Depot um, than than they were historically, and I think that they are uh, their focus on customer service, their focus on introducing new things like rentals, uh, things that Home Depot has been so successful for so long. I think that Lowe's absolutely is a very strong competitor to, to Home Depot, and they they cannot let their guard down. Ron Gross, what are you looking at? Dan, no boring old economy stocks this week, my friend. <laughs> Ultragenics Pharmaceuticals are a R-E, rare, is the ticker symbol. I recently added this to my personal basket of biotech stocks. I just took a small position, because I need to learn more. They're an early-stage biotech company. They focus on the treatment of rare and ultra-rare diseases. I won't get deep into the technologies here, because, quite frankly, I'm not sure I even understand them yet. Uh, <laughs> and the diseases they're focused on have names that most of us have never heard of. Um, but it's a very, very interesting company. They currently have three approved medicines, generated about $99 million in the quarter. They are nowhere near profitable due to continued R&D and that low level of sales. But their pipeline includes five gene therapies in various stages of phase one and phase two trials, a billion dollars of cash on hand. So, they've got time to work this out, get those pipeline drugs into the marketplace. We'll see where it goes. $7 billion market cap right now. Ultragenics, Dan, got a question? Certainly. So, rare and ultra-rare genetic diseases, Ron, how big is the market share for a company like this? It seems like there's a cap to me. That's a great question, and there probably is a cap. They're going after $1 billion, $5 million markets, sometimes $500 million markets that no one else has bothered to go after. So, they have to hit a lot of them, and it can only get so big. You make a good point. Pick a stock, Dan. Absolutely, Chris. Don't know much about rare genetic diseases, but I do know much about paint and putty, so I'm going with Home Depot. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right, thanks, guys. We're out of time. We'll see you next week.